This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research. Hi, I'm Daniel Trebucchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. So, hello. Welcome to another episode of Talking About Platforms. Hi, Becky. Hi. And hi to my regular co-host, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Hi. Before we jump in, let me, as always, introduce our exciting guest for today. Uh, today, we have Rebecca A. Karp. She's an assistant professor of business administration in the strategy unit at Harvard Business School. And as you can imagine, I'm reading this from the website. Our <laughs> research examines how companies formulate and execute strategies for growth. In particular, she focuses on the role innovation and differentiation play in product development, strategy execution, and organizational change. Rebecca's research spans healthcare, financial services, video gaming, which is super exciting to me in particular, uh, media and creative industries. Um, and platforms and that's exactly what we are <laughs> talking about today well we go directly to the first question we always do to our our guest the thing that is in common for all the people coming here with us uh, talking about platforms is the fact that uh, uh, we all do research on platforms but uh, platform is a kind of buzzword that definitely have uh, um, has various meanings and various perspectives that can be taken. So our first question is, what is a platform to you? And more importantly, how you end up studying platforms? Yeah. So, you know, I think I probably take less of kind of an economics view on what a platform is. So, you know, I think probably some people maybe who have been on the podcast or maybe in the future or many listeners kind of view a platform as a marketplace. And I would say, or a two-sided or multi-sided marketplace. I typically think about platforms more in kind of the more traditional kind of computer developer sense, which is it's a piece of technology that gets built upon in which it enables others to kind of use more in kind of um, the Baldwin kind of Clark sense of, of having, it's a set of almost rules or an infrastructure that allows others to build upon it. Or if we want to think about um, kind of Bresnahan and Greenstein's sense of something that you would build on, it's a common set of infrastructure. And that's, and that's really kind of how I think about platforms. And much of my research has kind of been motivated by that idea, even actually my current research on um, video game streamers and video game developers, because having a common set of frameworks or rules in which others can build upon is, is a really useful, important part of building out kind of a market, a larger market, or being able to collaborate to develop something that maybe on your own, you wouldn't be able to produce. So if you're interested in studying things around like how how collaboration happens and creative projects these days, like understanding that infrastructure as a key piece is really a critical part of, of any research stream. I think that's interested in that space. 
hopefully that answers your question, Danielle. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also very interesting to have someone that is taking that original perspective of pla- yeah. on platforms in. I think it's the first episode we have with this uh, with this take on. Yeah. So I'll tell you, um, I, I was a consultant for many, many years before I got became interested in getting my PhD. And, and when I was a consultant, and actually, this is a little bit of the motivation behind the paper we're going to talk about today as well. Um, I I became really interested in like processes of collaboration across firms and across companies. And one thing that really makes those, those collaborations, particularly like when you're trying to innovate and you're trying to develop new markets or technologies, you really need like a common platform or a common piece of architecture to be able to work from. And I saw, um, you know, firms, I did a lot of work in financial services. So I saw a lot of these, a lot of large banks kind of like vying for positions where they could kind of like own this core piece of technology or figuring out these really interesting ways that they needed to work together to develop these technologies, but still be able to compete after developing them. So that like really these observations in the real world motivated uh, a lot of my interest in studying platforms. And I think just more broadly, it's such an important, whether you take more of like an economics view on platforms, or you kind of take more of like a engineering or a developer perspective on platforms. It, it, they're such an important part of the economy. Um, <laughs> you know, that this other platform I'm studying, which is Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. I, I mean, it's, it's the largest kind of video gaming streaming platform in the world. And Amazon itself is like this incredible platform as well. So I think it's just such an important part of the economy, these platform business models that as scholars, particularly in a business school, it's, you're almost remiss not to, not to have some understanding of how they work. And that that's kind of my motivation, both because I saw them kind of at work in my prior job. And also they're just such a meaningful part of our economy today. Thank you. Thank you. I just noted down, go come back to Twitch later. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but before we do that, uh, you already mentioned the, the paper that we uh, want to talk about um, first. Uh, and the title of the paper is um, From Proprietary to Collective Governance, How do Platform Participation participation strategies evolve. Um, it's written by O'Mahony and Garp in 2022, published in the Strategic Management Journal. Um, and what I found very, very ref- like refreshing and interesting um, is the perspective not exclusively on a dominant platform and how the don- dominant platform kind of tries to, to govern its ecosystem from a very central perspective, um, whatever it takes, uh, basically, but also like entering in this um, like participative uh, uh, format and, and really bringing in different interests in a very, very interesting setting. Um, and with that, uh, Rebecca, I would invite you to introduce the, the paper to us. 
Yeah, so sure. So a couple things about, so this paper is about a particular platform. It's called the Eclipse platform. And, and Eclipse is sort of like what I was talking about before. It's really a set of technologies or or almost like a framework. And, and what it was is in the early 2000s, um, developers needed a way to work together. So can you can you imagine a world in which we didn't have, you know, Microsoft Word, or we didn't have some of these frameworks we use as scholars to share, or Google Docs, right? Like there was no way to kind of work together, select, you know, font types, all sorts of things, right? Like these spaces didn't exist for developers. And there was a race by a lot of firms to develop kind of these spaces where developers didn't have to, every time they wanted to write code, like set the fonts and do all these kind of standard things. So these things are called integrated developers. Uh, development environments. They're called IDEs. And there's a race to kind of develop these IDEs. And, and what happened is what we, Siobhan and I became really interested in this. Um, and we became interested in Eclipse because something on Eclipse, the, um, what happened is it's Eclipse started as a project by IBM to develop kind of this space, this environment. And, and IBM decided to um, make this, this platform they were developing open source. So they opened it up for the rest of the world to participate and use. And both of us became really interested in this phenomenon and were curious about whether, you know, opening this technology would indeed, you know, invite other firms to participate and encourage their participation, or would it kind of actually not have those consequences? And then, you know, what would trigger differences? How might that change? And then secondarily, we were really interested in how the firms would participate. Like, would they really be competitive? Would they collaborate? How would it work? And that's, and that's sort of um, what why we became interested and more from a more general perspective i think these questions about you know how open should a platform be you know whether it's like fully fully open in the case of what happened with the eclipse platform it became an, this open source community or if it's more controlled but like these decisions both are the types of decisions that platform sponsors need to make constantly, but also complements need to decide what kind of platform do they want to work with? Do they do you want to work with a platform that's really closed where the sponsor has a lot of control? Or do you want to work with a platform that's more open and under what conditions? So from both sides of the platform, whether it be kind of the owner's perspective or the participant's perspective, these decisions are really important ones to make. So that's why I think like we were interested in the phenomenon, but we were also more interested in from a more general standpoint, what that would mean for participation with the platform. And, and I would say what we kind of learned is, is this platform transitioned over time from being closed and owned by IBM to open. But it also went through a period of time where it was really open and there were no real rules by which the participants knew how to um, contribute to the platform. And under that period of time where the platform was really, really open, we saw that um, all these firms that were participating and trying to build on top of the platform, uh, platform actually stop. So under conditions when the platform is super, super open, we actually saw complements cease to be to complements, um, and then you know as as the platform became more restricted, and there were kind of these communal rules by which 
people had to release things at the same time. They had to make sure their code was up to a certain quality. There were a variety of things that they had to do to participate. We saw that participation increased. So there's this lesson about kind of the openness of a platform. You know, you can get too open um, and it, you need to kind of have these set of rules to manage. Um, the other side is we were really interested in in kind of the participants' um, different ways of contributing to the platform. So even though they're all collaborating to build kind of this ID together, there were all these competitive strategies that that the participants were also playing at the same time. So we found that to be really interesting. You know, there's like a lot of theory about like if you make something more open and you have kind of like these really open communal governance structures, it'll kind of quash competition. Well, that was not the case. We didn't we didn't see that. We saw that kind of competition persisted regardless of kind of the governance structure of the platform. And it, it, it wasn't a bad thing. It was actually good. It helped to create innovation on the platform. But anyway, so that's a little bit about the paper in terms of why we were interested in it and also kind of some of the key learnings that came from it. Well, I would start with a, with a very broad question still yeah. related to the, to the paper per se. Uh, one of the things we are trying to do with this podcast is trying to, you know, bring people closer to scientific research. What are the main takeaways that uh, um, you would summarize for managers? So for people dealing with a similar kind of platform, what are the main suggestions you would give them after doing and writing this paper? Yeah, so I think like there are a couple things. One is if you are one of the issues when you have like you're deciding to kind of open up a platform is this question about appropriability like will your ideas get appropriated if there aren't controls around the protection of your ideas and we actually found that not to be so much of an issue it's more about like what bad code or bad kind of um provisions people will put into a project if you make it sufficiently open. So I would suggest, you know, managers think more about not so much what might be taken out or copied, but more about the quality of things that go in and ensuring kind of there's the right level of quality um, to enhance kind of any project that's sufficiently open. So that would be one key thing I would mention. The second is, you know, these notions of like competition and collaboration by your comp I think that's something you need to think about if you're the sponsor of a platform, like how can you encourage the right le level of collaboration, but also potentially the right level of competition among um, among competitors. And lastly, you know, if you're a complement to a platform, I think that, you know, you have to really consider and think deeply about like, what is the governance structure of that platform and the fact that it may change over time and that might have implications for you. So I think that's a careful kind of decision set that you need to make before you decide that you're going to engage with any given platform. Why did IBM kind of open source the Eclipse platform? What was the motivation or rationale behind it? Yeah, there's there was a set of rationale. So the first set is that the platform, so this space, this ID, ID space, there was a race to get into it. 
And ultimately it was going to be commoditized as a result. Like people were really, you couldn't really charge for this type of technology. So IBM couldn't go and charge its its customers to use their IDE because there were so many kind of competitors racing into this space. And also because it was a race, there was this interest in who could build the best one the fastest. So these were, you know, some interesting conditions, right? Like you're not going to be able, you're, you're going to be able to create value, but you're not going to be able to potentially capture it. So that was the first issue. And the second was the speed at which you needed to build this IDE. So the idea from, from IBM standpoint is if you could build this IDE, you could sell a set of services in the middleware space that kind of could live on top of it. And if you're not out there and enough developers aren't using your IDE, you don't have a large enough install base, in other words, then you're gonna lose this battle for the kind of this better quality, perhaps more differentiated set of products that you can sell on top of the IDE. So the idea is by opening it, they, um, they didn't have to worry. It was already kind of this, these effects of commoditization were already at work. But they were hoping they could increase the speed at which they they built the technology out and also perhaps like made the technology more robust. So the idea was by getting all these other firms involved, you could create kind of a better quality IDE. Um, and lastly, in doing so, you were encouraging these new sets of developers to use the Eclipse platform which is what IBM wanted to do. So it was seeding use through this process as well. And by seeding use, they could then kind of sell these like higher, you know, more differentiated products up the stack to the developers that were using the IDE. I, I think many, many firms, especially in the industrial sector, firms that I also worked, worked with in, in my research, they all always try to accomplish something similar, right? So they try to uh, bring in, bring developers on on their platforms to address a particular, I don't know, industry um, or setting um, layer in the like industrial tech stack. Um, but none of those companies that I work with made the step to open source uh, actually yeah. the technical architecture. How important was that? Was that? It, it was hugely important. And part of the reason why is they really wanted to encourage firms uh, that had expertise that might have been wary of participating to participate. And what they did is they, so they opened it up, which meant that IBM, you know, couldn't, they were benefiting, but they couldn't benefit solely on the IDE, right, itself. And, and they they actually had a special kind of license that they had developed that allowed those that um, developed um, as part of this open source project to still use their code and profit from their code. So historically, prior to this point, um, if you developed in an open source projects, some projects, the licensing around that code is that you, you know, you kind of give that code up. And if you use it again, like you, you, you can't profit from it. But in this case, firms could still profit from the code that they developed. They could use it in other things and they didn't have to worry about kind of giving licensing rights back to the open source community. So I think what it did is it, it really encouraged large and really knowledgeable firms to participate in the space because they knew that IBM could directly benefit from 
building kind of this infrastructure. And also it let them use the code that they developed for other things. So it's sort of the way that they designed it allowed them to kind of invite participation and also allow people to protect what they what they put in, if that makes sense. So I think it was hugely important. You know, Philip does research on B2B platforms, while yeah. I'm usually the 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 seaside of uh, of the podcast. And while I was reading your paper, uh, I thought about something, and I would like to have your your opinion on it, even sure. though it's, it's in a different uh, industry. You are kind of telling uh, the story of an evolution for a kind of tech product platform to a multi-sided platforms where companies were joining to develop their own products and, and, and have a role in it. Still, the participation was not just open, but they were actually taking a role in the governance of the platform. Yeah. And while I was reading this, I was thinking about what is happening right now with the creator economy, where... You know, it's a completely different field. It's not maybe that tech driven, but you still have a space that is enable, enabling people to create something. And then there are many waves, let me say like this, many uh, momentum given by the fact that the platform decides to change something in the algorithm. And these people found themselves from one day to another with a different viewership, with a different uh, uh, access to the other side and things like that. I was wondering if you ever linked your research with this field, with this industry. Yeah, so I, I mean, I, I know Philippe knows this. I'm I'm currently doing a lot of research with video stream streamers, video game streamers, which I, you know, if you ask them, they're part of like this creative content producers, right? And yes, we have we've had many conversations about how the rules of uh, how the rules of play can change and what that means. And here's what I would have to say, and I'd be curious if if you're if you've thought about this as well, um, Danielle. But the video game streamers that I've I've observed and that I that I've talked to, the ones that are are quite good are quite savvy about the rules. And here's here's what I would say is happening in the creative economy from from what I can observe is that people are much more interested in in um, working across multiple platforms. So they seem to have less of a concentration in any one platform. So for example, if you're streaming on Twitch, you also have a massive presence on YouTube. You also are like really savvy at, at and I, I don't know if I think of Twitter so precisely as a platform, but you're using all of these different types of social media um, to help you manage dealings with any one algorithm. So it's almost like this hedging um, strategy. And, and I'll tell you what I mean, you know, so like um, content creators on Twitch, uh, Twitch is really poor for kind of discoverability. It's real unless you're a really big streamer, um, it's not going to necessarily point you to someone. So it, it's hard to discover new new streamers on Twitch. You kind of have to know who you want to see or the person has to be like really, really big. So a lot of streamers, what they do is they use YouTube as a way to kind of get their content out there and create interest and audience ship because the algorithm on YouTube is more favorable if you can, if you know how to use it the right way to attracting view, uh, new viewers. So they, 
they use these two platforms as complements really for different purposes. And I think this is a little bit new. I think, you know, the the literature from my read and and I you both of you probably know better than I you know, really like there's a benefit to investing in a single platform from a learning perspective. If you're a complement, like you have to think carefully before you decide to, you know, multi-home across platforms. But I think for these content creators, they're sort of using these platforms for different activities, for different jobs. And thus they're kind of using them in these interesting complementary ways to get around some of the strong kind of um, effects of the algorithms. It's interesting. You're suggesting a kind of uh, multi-platform uh, yeah. uh, strategy and management uh, and envelopment of platforms on uh, from the creator side. Yeah, the, the creators are getting more savvy about like managing, well, if the algorithms are going to manage them, they're just, and I think for the creative economy, it's a little bit different. The cost to working across platforms is lower than if you're a developer and you actually mm -hmm. like need to change your code. You know, if you're a video game developer, it might be different, right? Because you might have to change, make changes to your game to work across different, different platforms. But if you're a content creator, sure, there's a learning cost associated associated with learning different platforms, but you're not necessarily like, uh, you, you basically what you might do is you might take your, your stream from Twitch and cut it and edit it and put it in YouTube on YouTube. So the cost to kind of work across multiple platforms is sufficiently lower, I think for, for these content creators. I, I remember it when we were already in the gaming space and I'm happy to jump in. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's <laughs> Uh, that Microsoft also tried. I, did they buy Mixer or did they build it themselves? I, so I think that, that there was a platform, a, a Twitch competitor attempt from Microsoft yeah. called Mixer. And I think they even got an exclusive deal with one of the major uh, Fortnite streamers, Ninja, uh, yeah. to bring them exclusive on their platform. But in the end, it didn't work out. And I think Mixer is not online anymore, or at least not not a... They, they didn't compete in a, in a serious way with Twitch. Did you follow this, uh, this approach? And, and do you have an opinion based on what we just talked about, like having different platforms for different purposes? So maybe it wasn't differentiated enough. And also then on the other hand, maybe there is a limit for multi-homing and, and trying to, to access new platforms. Do you have, I don't know if, if, if this is something that you have. It's something we've been thinking a lot about as we conduct this research, because I think also Facebook recently, right, announced that it was, it's stopping its streaming services. So, and maybe they'll start them back up again, but there, uh, there has been kind of, it's been difficult to see a real competitor to Twitch emerge in, in recent at least in recent days. And I do think this has to do with this notion of like, what are you using the platform for? So, you know, streaming is an activity that's very, very time intensive for the content creator. And you have this audience that expects to see you at a given time in a given way. And I'm, I just think the convertibility of those eyeballs to another platform is it a difficult proposition for, for these streamers to make. However, you know, having a presence on YouTube where you're not streaming, you're cutting your content 
and you're turning it into kind of evergreen content on YouTube is a really productive kind of secondary use for that content. So I think there's this idea of like, based on the different activities that you have, you can string together a set of platforms in a complementary use. But as a, a direct substitute, I think that that's a different story. So I think that that's going to be a little bit of a different or a difficult proposition. Now, what, what will be interesting to see is if streamers kind of stream on YouTube, if there's streaming services on YouTube, if that emerges because you're in one place and that and that could be one a interesting angle to see how developed that becomes or if it does at all. Trying to, to bring this back to the, uh, to the to the paper, still making the connection between the creator economy and individuals who are more on the user side of, I would say, on the platform rather than maybe a, a, like a contributor and, and complement yeah. as a, on the Eclipse side. Do you do you see like opening up a, a from Microsoft perspective or also Facebook perspective, if they would have applied? an open and participative mm. governance and really trying to bring in content creators that not just use the platform as a consumer basically or, or user to to stream their content but really be engaged is this something that you think is isn't like a, an entry game so to say for for a new platform in a more or less mature market as well i love this idea i think it's a brilliant idea I think that that could have some real legs because at least in the streamer community, and I can't say that this is necessarily true of all content creative communities, but in the streamer community, I think people are really, really passionate about um, about the environment in which their content is used, streamed, the type of communities that they create. And inside of their communities, they have like really incredible um, norms and governance, right? So, you know, there's a whole process by which like bad behavior, whatever that means, each streamer might have a different view of what bad behavior is, but there are different rules. They manage those rules and they manage their communities. And I think they take great pride and it's very important part of developing and cultivating your audience is establishing this. So I think more broadly where the streamer community could have a little bit more power to manage kind of their collective presence, I think there would probably be a lot of um, encouragement for this, especially, you know, right? Like sometimes some streams maybe are like less, um, are not always maybe towards what we would hope, right? Like the best behaviors aren't being portrayed in every stream. And sometimes streamers have to manage behaviors that that they would prefer would would not show up at their stream, right? So, you know, having kind of the ability to um, manage some sort of governance or have their voices heard, I think at a higher order, not just at the level of their community, but kind of at the level of the platform, I think likely that would be very encouraging. I think that that would do much to kind of encourage streamers and maybe users as well to, to come and test out uh, a new kind of alternative, a different alternative streaming platform. We started from uh, how you got to the world of platforms. We'd like to know 
where the world of platforms is going, according to you. So on the one end, your ongoing future projects, but also what do you see in, uh, in, in the world of platforms coming up? Yeah, so I think it, we and we've touched upon a few of these themes already, right? Like this notion of like governance in terms of like how what role does kind of the technology agnostic to the human take? I think that's an interesting space. I personally, I'd like to see a lot more research on platforms that less from the perspective of the the dominant owner or kind of the sponsor mm -hmm. and more from the perspective of other players within the ecosystem and how they're making decisions. And I think, you know, Siobhan in my paper takes a stab at doing that. And, I, and there has been good work um, recently that also has been in that direction, but I'd like to see more around kind of compliments and how they're making decisions, not just on a single platform, but on multiple platforms. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's a space I, I think really, um, would would do well to kind of get more more um more research on secondly i think you know on the level of the ecosystems themselves you know it, i think competition is not happening but platform to platform but ecosystem to ecosystem and i'm sure other people you have mentioned this as well i think there's a clear space in understanding those relationships between the two um and lastly, I really am so interested in this in this um, creative creator uh, content creative environments and marketplaces and markets. Content creators are going to have huge influence on what we buy. <laughs> they already do how we buy it, how firms differentiate themselves in the future, and thus, like these these platforms relationships with these content creators is so vital to, to that output. So how they are using platforms and how the rules on platforms are, are both, um, are both enabling and restricting their ability to develop their own content, I think is an important and fruitful area for research moving forward. These are all very, very exciting potential paths. Let me quickly quickly recap what we what we talked about uh, today. So we started with uh, the like your paper and talking about um, the Eclipse platform and how IBM, a like big uh, rather traditional company, open up a, a platform that it has built to increase the coverage and, and adoption by becoming more open, becoming even open source, um, and inviting different participants, participant types. Um, to help build and grow the platform and also the capabilities the platform has. It's a, the very interesting core of, of the paper that we talked about. Then we moved to the creator uh, economy and discussed how collective governance also plays a role uh, and, uh, in, the, in the creator economy and especially in the gaming economy and the role of multi-homing using different functions of different platforms. Um, and then we ended on the governing power of technologies um, and how <laughs> this might uh, evolve in the future, um, especially with, with complementers, be it content creators, but I also see um, like big app developers like, like uh, Spotify or Epic Games, what we recently saw really like taking a, a leading role in trying to influence platform governance from a position of more power than they had mm -hmm. uh, many years ago. Um, I hope this uh, kind of summarized it. And yeah, with that, I can only say 
thank you so much. It was a very, very exciting uh, conversation for me. Many interesting topics also to, to follow up. Um, if people want to follow your, your work, Becky, uh, what's, what's the best way? Maybe also to reach out if, if someone... Yeah, I would encourage more. people to reach out. Um, I'll give you my email address and, and anyone interested is more than welcome. I, I'd love to hear people's thoughts and, and if people have ideas or would like to collaborate, please, please reach out. My email is rkarp at hbs.edu. And that's the best way to get in touch with me. And yeah, I look forward to hearing people's feedback and ideas. We will put this as always in the show notes, also link uh, the paper we discussed and, and other topics we, we touched today. Um, yeah, and with that, it, that was another episode of Talking About Platforms. I very much enjoyed it. I hope the listeners did so too. Thank you so much, Becky. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you. Thank you very much for Thank joining. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work, you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out to the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit talkingaboutplatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again talking about platforms.